We're going to hit the word then, you and me, uh, and for the uh, presence of the Spirit in our lives as the people of God. So uh, let's, if we will, bow our heads and uh, seek, uh, seek that for us. Heavenly Father, grateful again uh, for some time in the Word, and uh, pray that uh, despite it being the seasons of vacation, that uh, um, it's a reminder to us of your constancy, uh, that there is no break for you, in a sense, of your love and of your grace and mercy and power, um, that you are consistently um, and faithfully uh, meeting our needs, providing for us both physically and spiritually, and most of all, have given to us uh, your greatest gift in Jesus. And uh, so we thank you for that and pray that uh, you'd open up your word before us. Uh, speak to our hearts and minds and help us to apply it to our life of faith, uh, spe- uh, specifically as we go our separate ways today, uh, so that we might live uh, for your glory and for the good of others. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. All right. Well, uh, grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ. Amen? Amen. All right. So we're in the Gospel of Luke, and uh, what makes this, I think, particularly interesting and timely is that this section of the Gospel of Luke is called the travel narrative. Okay, think about that, the travel narrative. Perfect for summer, right? All right. Summer travels, uh, vacations, camps, uh, mission trips. Summer is a busy season of travel, right? Right. All right. But in the case of Jesus, if you heard me in my prayer, it's no vacation for him, is it? (laughs) It's no time off. He is still about the mission and ministry that his father has given him, faithfully fulfilling it regardless of the season, all right? Now, as we talk about the travel narrative, I want you to think about these chapters like you think about your travels and how trips and vacations give you structure and content. What do I mean by that? Well, think about it this way. A day at the beach is different, right, than a day in the mountains, which is different than a day of, say, touring a large city, right? Each of those days is different and provides a different structure and a different content uh, for you uh, as you go about that day. Uh, And so we could say the same of the travel narrative of Jesus, that this chapter that we're going to look at gives us structure and content uh, for what? Not a vacation, but it gives us structure and content for our trip, our adventure, the one that we have been invited on as Christ has called us to come and follow him as the people of God. Now, I would say this, though, that our travels with Jesus are a little different, right? Um, We're traveling not from DFW to wherever, right? But we're traveling into death. We're traveling then from death to life. And then as we travel from death to life, we're traveling to a new way of living. Let me share with you what I mean by that. The Apostle Paul, Romans 6, says this. Let's read this together. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Death, new life, a new way of life, completely different type of travel adventure. And so in Luke, this is his emphasis in more than half of his gospel, this journey that we're on with Jesus That along the way to Jerusalem, because that's where Christ is headed, that along the way to Jerusalem, Jesus teaches his disciples. He teaches the crowds. He teaches the religious authorities who are hanging on the margins looking for some way to to ensnare him and, and, and some reason to arrest him. And he teaches you and me. But what he teaches is who, what he teaches is about who he is. And why he is here. And then as he teaches, he invites. All right? He invites them on a journey. He invites you and me on a journey with him so that we can participate, as Paul says, in the death and resurrection, in the new life that Jesus offers. And so our story today is a glimpse into that journey, all right? And that in the travel narrative, okay? So what I want you to picture is as I read this for you, Um, This is part of Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem, all right? Walking along, taking time to teach the crowds, the disciples, uh, and those uh, around him. All right, so here it is. On one occasion, an expert in the law, a lawyer or an attorney, stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? The young man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly. Jesus said, do this, and you will live. But the lawyer wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who's my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said this, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? This is Jesus asking the question. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. All right, that's the story of the Good Samaritan. If you've grown up in the church, you're probably familiar with that. It comes around almost every year, uh, it seems like. Uh, But it's a well-known story um, for a a reason I'll get to in a minute. Um, But as I said, it's a a story that we're all familiar. And so what I want to say before we start uh, to unpack our suitcase, sorry, to unpack this verse, is that out of anything and everything, that Jesus could have started with to begin this travel narrative, this time of teaching, 
out of everything available to him uh, that he could have used to capture the attention of the hearer. He could have started with power. He could have started with privilege. He could have started with money. He could have started with the law. He could have started with the religious structures of the day. He could have started with material needs of the people. He could have started with Rome's oppression. And the list goes on and on of what he could have used to gain the attention of his hearer. The one thing that he starts with, which is none of those things, (laughs) the one thing that he starts with is mercy. Mercy and compassion is what Jesus leads with to get the attention of his hearers that day and of us as well. So think about that. Think about mercy and compassion as a lead-in, all right, to gain people's attention. Now, why do I say that? Well, maybe put it in the context of today, all right? You've opened up your app and you're watching uh, the latest blurb on the political scene, or um, you're watching uh, uh, something online or on TV, Uh, you see a politician on campaign or or at a debate, what does he usually start with? What does she usually start with? Because I would put it before you like this. That in our day and age, and I don't think this is any different than the day and age of Jesus's, that's why Jesus is able to, to, to get their attention. But I would say after their brief introductory remarks, right, thanking probably their host or perhaps even pandering to their audience, the politician either starts their speech with all the great things that they've done for their constituents, right? Or they start by criticizing their opponents, right? They come out swinging, so to speak. But I don't know about you, but I'm not familiar with anyone ever trying to gain people's attention by starting with a story of mercy, right? Of compassion. And I use that as an example with the hope that we're able to grasp how profound what Jesus is doing is. And that mercy will be an enormous part of this travel narrative. If you will, it's how we punch our round-trip ticket. That God is operating in such a distinct and opposite way of the world that the way He works can't help but gain the attention of those who are listening. So through chapters in Luke, Jesus draws the hearer into that relationship with Him And God's saving grace, not through stories of power, not through stories of of wealth, not through stories of privilege, or, or not through stories of material need, but he draws people in through stories of mercy and compassion. It's a definite break, brothers and sisters, from an eye for an eye, isn't it? Or a tariff for a tariff, right? All right, what about the Good Samaritan then? You've heard the text. Where is the mercy in the text and why is it important? Is this text just a moral lesson on caring for people in need, strangers, even strangers, or is there more to this text for us? Well, I put before you, like any good vacation, this is an adventure which exceeds your expectations, right? There's more than can be, uh, than was expected. But first, let me say this. 
An easy mistake in reading this story is to moralize it, right? And this is the mistake you want to avoid, right? That is to say that all this text is is an exhortation to help our neighbor in need, okay? Um, If that were the case, this would not be a gospel, a message. This would simply be the law, all right? This would be nothing but law. Yes, you can draw a secondary lesson from this text that uh, we need to, to love our neighbor, right? And we we need to discover who our neighbor is and what does it mean to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, right? I mean, absolutely, that's part of what it means to be a follower of Christ. But the primary focus of the text is actually Jesus, the storyteller, and the mercy he embodies. Let me explain. All right, so as you you, you build up this story, we recognize that the, the young man, the lawyer, he is the smart guy in the room, okay? He's got all the education, more so than the disciples do. And in fact, uh, Scripture uses um, a, a, a word which could mean like infant-like. The disciples were infant-like in terms of their knowledge of the law, all right, uh, or just general knowledge. It's not a criticism of this. All that Luke is doing is, is helping us see the difference in education, right, uh, that exists between the, the young man uh, and the followers, the followers of Jesus. So, with as much education as he has, he's confident in his own point of view, and he wants to put Jesus to the test, and he asks that, that question, whose answer he already knows, right? Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And the answer itself assumes that the way of life, or the law, is the way of life, right? Know it, keep it, live it, and you'll have eternal life. But Jesus shows him by the story that all he's done is twist God's promises, twist God's faithfulness and his mercy, and use it as an excuse not to show compassion and mercy to others. In the text, the story of the Good Samaritan, there are four four questions, right? One, two, three. There are four questions. This is why I don't go to math camp this week. Maybe I need math camp, right? There are four questions, all right? In the text, uh, two by the lawyer and two by Jesus. The first question is the lawyer putting Jesus to the test, and you heard that already uh, in verse 25. But here, before I go any farther, let me give you a bit of pub trivia, all right, uh, for you. The only other time the phrase put Jesus to the test, the only other time put Jesus to the test is used in Scripture is... The wilderness, right. When Jesus goes out into the wilderness and is tempted by who? Satan. Yeah. So Luke picks up on uh, the language that both Matthew and Mark use and uses it for this, uh, for this particular episode to, to show us that this guy doesn't believe at all in Jesus, right? And in fact, his, uh, his schemes are nefarious, right? He has no interest in learning the truth. His only interest is to cause trouble and perhaps um, um, uh, trip Jesus up uh, and to cause uh, the authorities to, to find reason to, uh, to arrest him. I always thought that was interesting. The only time this appears is with the devil in the desert, right? Well, anyway, back to the text. So the first question starts the story, and then Jesus responds with a question. What is written in the law? Natural question to ask an attorney, right? The attorney answers just as expected, right? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you're correct, do this and you will live. But here's the deal. 
At the heart of the Torah, at the heart of the, the law, is God's mercy, is God's love. That's not what must I do, right? The human response is, is faith, or in faith, is likewise a response in love and mercy. Uh, and the Good Samaritan story illustrates this. In fact, Romans 13 says love is the fulfillment of the law. And we're going to see love being fulfilled in, in uh, or the law being fulfilled in Christ, of course. And that, that's the ultimate expression of love. But just like he did with the devil, Je- uh, Jesus leads the lawyer to answer his own question. The debate is over, right? But the lawyer is not content with God's answer of merciful love. The lawyer is not content with compassion. His intentions, as I said, are dubious. He wants to stay focused on that personal list that he has built up that he believes makes him righteous. That list that he has kept, right, of all his righteous acts so that he can claim before God that he deserves eternal life because he's kept uh, the Torah. Um, So that leads us to the next two questions. The first one by the lawyer who's now in an untenable position. What does he do? he tries to deflect attention. He tries to deflect attention away from himself by implying that the law is the problem, but the law is unclear. So, Rabbi, you've got to clarify the word neighbor. Who is my neighbor, right? Implying that there are some who are not his neighbors. Why does he ask this? Because he wants Jesus to tell him, based upon the law, who he, Jesus, would exclude. But if you've been following Jesus in this travel narrative, you'll realize that there is not one person Jesus excludes from his presence, right? That Jesus' life and ministry is an open invitation to anyone uh, who will take up their cross and follow him. That regardless of who you are, where you come from, station or circumstance in life, right? Sins committed, sins omitted, whatever the case may be, uh, that there is an invitation to the mercy and compassion of God himself. And this is why this story is so important. It shocks, it offends the sensibilities of the lawyer, but it also breaks the cynicism. It breaks the the despondency of the crowd who saw no way to meet the demanding requirements of the law. So think about it this way. In that story, Jesus parades a priest and a Levite as models of the indifferent, unmerciful, and of the loveless. Folks, they were supposed to be pillars of society. They were the ones that others looked to as examples in in way of life. They set the temperature, if you will, of the community. And so Jesus calls the lawyer to show love and mercy as part of that covenant to whom God's love and mercy has already been shown, right? Jesus says, in effect, you've been given this love and mercy in your own life. Now go and show that love and mercy to others. So if you were to sit down with this text in front of you for a while and you'd perceive something that builds upon the mercy of God, And that's that Jesus shifts the question. So go back to the idea of who is my neighbor. If Jesus, and this is what I mean, if Jesus wanted to teach a Jew to include a Samaritan and others in his definition of neighbor, the injured man would have been a Samaritan. 
I don't know if you recall from the reading of the text, but the text doesn't tell us anything about who the injured person is, does it? In fact, the Greek word used is for a person with no identifying characteristics. There's no ethnicity. There's no gender. It's just person, right? And additionally, Jesus asked the concluding question in reverse. (laughs) Not which of these three considered the injured man his neighbor, but which of these three seems to have been a neighbor to the man? Does that make sense? Not who is my neighbor, but how can I be a neighbor And this breaks this neighbor-defining mentality that so often keeps you and me uh, from extending the love and compassion of God to others. It's that neighbor-defining mentality that cautions us, one must be careful not to befriend the wrong people, right? In fact, it prompts us to ask, well, then how can we show mercy like the Samaritan showed mercy? Well, here it is. You see, the story reveals that such doing, such compassion, such mercy, it flows only from having received God's mercy ourselves. That it doesn't come from our strength. It doesn't come from our, our wisdom and our own abilities. Legalists who cross-examine Jesus make no progress until they recognize that they're the person half dead or dead And Jesus is the one who does mercy as the neighbor. That's why we as followers of Christ are empowered by the Spirit and called to show mercy to whomever. It's not our job to determine who's worthy of mercy, right? But to live in such a way that our life is an extension of Christ's mercy to us, right? Now that we have received mercy, God's mercy flows out of us to others. Now that mercy will look different, right? Because each of our contexts is different and the structure of our lives are different. Some of you are at the beach, some are in the mountains, some are in the big city, right? Our days are different, but nonetheless, as the people of God, mercy and compassion is given to us to give to others. But let me, uh, let me have you do this exercise. Pretend you're the attorney, you're the lawyer, you're the young man. You're steeped in the knowledge of the law, all right? You understand, you know the text, you've memorized them since a young child. You've probably grown up in an atmosphere uh, where uh, it was part of just the house, the household, all right? And so, as you're standing before Jesus, in your mind, Deuteronomy 10 pops up. Let me read to you a couple of verses from this section of Scripture, all right? And as I read to you these verses of Scripture, listen for the mercy. Listen for the compassion. Listen for what that young man would have already known. Verse 15, yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and a Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners for you yourselves who are foreigners in Egypt. Um, And so the text goes on and on. But you, you hear mercy, don't you? You hear compassion. 
on the people of God to show the very same thing that they themselves have received. So in reality, this young man's without excuse. He says, I will act to love my neighbor as myself, but tell me who he is. Jesus says, you can't because you're the victim. You're the dead. You're the dying. You need someone to love you. You need someone to show mercy to you. You need someone to heal you. You need someone to pay for you, to give you lodging, to revive you. I am the only one. I'm the one you despise because you associate me with sinners. Because it's Jesus who fulfills the law, right? Jesus who takes upon himself the sins of the world, the requirements of the law on the cross. I'm the only one who brings God's mercy. He says, I am your neighbor and I will give you gifts of mercy and healing and life. As I live in you, you will have life and will do mercy. Mercy not animated or not motivated by the law, brothers and sisters, but mercy animated by the love of God within us. Does that make sense? Mercy not motivated by the law, but mercy animated by Christ within us. So, this travel narrative, the mercy of God, the love of God, the compassion of God, that is what I would say is a trip, (laughs) unlike anything the world uh, could ever offer. But it's a trip that Jesus does. In his name, amen.